renewable energy system is undergoing a huge transition, with the costs of renewable energy becoming more competitive versus traditional sources, along with increased public awareness and pressure. Renewable energy is becoming the mainstream energy source for many, no longer an alternative just for the progressive few. Listen each week as Brant Handley and Christian Crown, founding partners of Renew Executive Search, interview renewable energy and sustainability experts that are not only making a difference to the environment, but are also growing successful businesses. Listen and learn about what attracted these experts to renewables, why they've stayed in the sector, and how they are helping renewable companies create a better tomorrow. We know you'll enjoy these stories as much as Brandt and Christian enjoyed recording them. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We are looking forward to you joining us as we dive deeper on how renewables are going mainstream. Today's guest, George Roberts, is the founder of TechScale Solution. He has over 20 years of experience with new product development in a range of industries, including specialty materials, automotive, and renewable energy. He founded TechScale Solution in 2014 to assist companies in transitioning clean energy technologies into variable commercial products. George leads the consultant engagement and has worked with a range of large-scale and startup clients in areas of fuel cells, hydrogen generation, energy storage, and microgrid development. Prior to founding TechScale Solution, he was the Vice President of Engineering at Heinlein Corporation, where he led the engineering and product development initiative to transition the company into a viable commercial entity. He drove a shift from technology development to commercialization of low-cost, high-performance hydrogen generators and hydrogen purifiers for the stationary backup power industry. Welcome to today's podcast, George. Thank you, Christian. It's a pleasure to be on with you today. Yeah, I can maybe the best place for me to start is just to tell you quickly how I first got into engineering and then how that led me to finding TechScale Solutions. Wonderful. Um, I was always a very curious child growing up, always working on different little projects around the house. Um, never really um, knew what an electrician or a plumber or an auto mechanic was or a carpenter. My dad did all those things around the house himself and you know, taught me how to do that as well. So it's kind of a good hands-on experience from an early age. And um, you know, he started as an, as an industrial arts teacher, teaching wood shop and metal shop, and then eventually got into the printing business. And all through that time of growing up, I got a lot of good hands-on experience and quickly realized that engineering was where I wanted to, uh, to point myself. So went to uh, college in the U.S. here and got a um, degree in mechanical engineering and worked in industry for about five years, developing custom process equipment that was used in um, materials manufacturing applications. And, you know, that was all, you know, interesting and um, well and good. But what I was finding is I really wanted to make a bigger impact. And we'll talk more a little bit later about, um, you know, the renewable energy area. But as I started, I worked at a company called UTC Power, which was a division of United Technologies Fuel Cells in the Hartford area of Connecticut. And there we were developing um, hydrogen fuel cells. And for those who aren't familiar, I won't get into all the technical details, but a hydrogen fuel cell is basically an energy source. It's an electrochemical um, cell, which is not that unlike a battery in the sense that it is able to... um, generate electricity. So a battery stores electricity through a chemical reaction. A fuel cell is taking hydrogen and actually making electricity kind of on demand through a chemical reaction. So long story short, we worked quite a bit with some of the auto companies, um, bus companies, and made some um, fuel cell 
systems that were um, put into the field and it actually were quite successful. But this was all in the very early 2000s. The technology was starting to come along, but it was not um, real mature at that point. And certainly the volumes weren't there. The demand wasn't there to, uh, to really scale it up. So I was there for about 10 years and then moved on to a um, smaller company that was uh, focused on the other half of the fuel cell equation. And that was making hydrogen. And what they were doing is uh, it was a process for purifying hydrogen, but also generating hydrogen. And this was a much smaller company. I was a VP of engineering. We we're outside of the Boston area. And what we did there was um, develop a technology that was able to take a, a liquid um, hydrocarbon fuel, convert it into hydrogen, and then run a fuel cell. And the idea there was that it would uh, power remote telecommunication sites. So you could put up a cell phone tower in the middle of Indonesia or in Africa or some remote place and have power on demand. And this could run essentially as long as you had uh, the liquid fuel on site. And it was very similar to delivering diesel fuel, which a lot of these places were familiar with, but this was a little bit more um, environmentally friendly, if you will. They still run on diesel, most of those, don't they? They do. Yeah, that's that's very common. The diesel is a, it's a good fuel in terms of the logistics. You can get it almost anywhere in the world and you can deliver it. The trick is, you know, of course, the emissions and then you know, ultimately it is a fossil fuel. So it is a, a finite resource. So, and we could talk more later about hydrogen, but there's lots of ways to make it. You know, certainly today, a lot of times it can be made from natural gas or other hydrocarbon fossil fuel-based materials. But as we'll talk more, there's a lot of um, what I call green ways of making that. And those are, you know, much more renewable. Thank you so much. But but how did you get into that sort of renewable space from, from the hydrogen into sort of more product development? Sure. Yeah. So after working at UTC Power and then at this small startup company with hydrogen, I kind of took what I learned from both those places. You know, United Technologies is a very large company with very formalized processes for doing development, very safety conscious, which is very important, certainly in the energy industry. But the issue was always that the development periods were uh, very slow. There was a lot of... Um, you know, we call it red tape that we would have to go through a lot of times to uh, to get projects um, funded and then ultimately uh, built up. On the other side of the equation there, we looked at the small company I was working with and um, we were very lean. We were maybe 10 people. And some days I'd be out in the back laboratory turning a wrench or um, running wiring or, um, you know, actually running tests. Other days I'd be out in front of a customer. Really hands-on. Very hands-on, right? So you're kind of, and then other days you're trying to figure out how to make it all work in between. So there was quite a bit of a, um, you know, an experience there. But when you're really lean and agile like that, which is great, you also want a little bit of that balance of the process and the rigor to make sure you develop a product that can actually do what it needs to do. So when I founded TechScale Solutions in 2014, that was really my focus was to take the process and the the standard ways of doing things in any kind of product development doesn't have to be even in energy, but just in a, a measured way to actually do that development. And then combine that with the um, agile um, flexibility of a small company that can get things done quickly. Because what I had learned is that it's important to get these renewable energy technologies out into the field early on. You want customers to try them, to actually utilize them and find out what they need, because it's oftentimes people don't know what they need until they get the product and then they start using it and then there's some feedback. So often I've found engineers and scientists will stay in the laboratory for too long. They get the technology, but they keep iterating and iterating and trying to get just a little bit better, a little bit better. Looking for that perfect technology. Exactly. They put it out in the field and find out maybe they were working on the wrong thing <laughs> or it needs to be a little bit tweaked. So, so that's really what I was doing with 
finding um, tech scale solutions was to come up with a way to um, really streamline that process, but to do it in a, um, a measured way so it ends up as a, um, a solid, viable commercial product that's also safe. You know, it needs to be a, um, a product that can be safely deployed into the, um, you know, into the various applications of uh, renewable energy. Wonderful. Can you tell us a bit more about how you work with the, at TechScale Solutions to to commercialize those products? Yes. So we f- we have a process, and what happens is it kind of depends on the company we're working with. So sometimes I'll have a very small company, or even a you know one person inventor who has a great idea. They have a technology for making electricity from some different method. Um, what I have typically found with that is that they're very specialized and they understand the chemistry or the physics behind their process. But what they mm-hmm. don't have a feeling for is all of the other pieces that have to come together to make this into a product. You know, you can do this in a, in a test tube or on a lab bench and make, you know, maybe a couple watts of power, enough to power maybe a small LED light bulb or something. But if you want to power, power an automobile, you might need, you know, anywhere from 50 to 150 kilowatts of power, or you want to power a... Um, You know, an industrial site or something, you might start to think about megawatts of power. Mm-hmm. So how do we actually scale that up and what has to go around there in terms of the, we call it balance of plant oftentimes. It's the controls, it's the, there's a lot of, you know, piping, plumbing, electrical components, cabinets, yep. those types of things that all have to get put together. So leveraging a lot of those things that have been done in other similar areas. So, you know, whether you're installing a solar array, a wind turbine, you need inverters, for example, or you need, um, you know, the various um, fixtures and, and electrical systems to put together with that. It's analogous in these systems as we develop them is to really figure out how we don't have to reinvent that wheel. We can take a lot of the existing technology and just kind of put that around the that new technology that this individual may have come up with. And then likewise, we work with a lot of large companies too that may already have more of that infrastructure in place, but still need that help. And we'll talk some case studies later where we've actually had to try to round out those teams to fill in those gaps because you you might have an expert in a very narrow area that's developed that secret sauce, that technology that makes it all work, but to round out that team to be able to um, do all the other portions of that development. And that's really where where TechScale Solutions comes in. So at the end of the day, it's really a lot of project management. It's a lot of making the right connections with the right suppliers, the right manufacturers, and helping them through that process. And really, it's comes down to just years of experience. I've been doing this for more than 20 years, and I've seen what works, what doesn't work, and really trying to um, avoid making the same mistakes over and over again. That's really what we uh, try to help our clients do. So really being sort of the interface, making sure that this actually gets out into the market. Exactly. That's fascinating. But maybe you could jump into some of the case studies. Sure. That's always uh, where you really make a difference for your clients. Yes. Yeah. So I think there's a couple case studies that would come into mind that I would talk about. I'd say we'll start with one that was a um, very small startup that was a spin out of a um, university research group. So this particular group had a technology for making hydrogen using a, um, basically it was an electrical process. I won't get into the details of how it all worked, but essentially they could take a natural gas and convert it into um, a, a hydrogen stream that could then be used to run a fuel cell or could be used to store the hydrogen depending upon what you wanted to do. Um, so they brought me in to take a look at their technology and help them scale it up. And I remember walking into their lab and looking at it, and sure enough, they drew out all the equations, explained how it all worked, and even demonstrated this thing. It was actually working at a very small scale. I mean, we were measuring this these volumes of hydrogen in 
milliliters or cc's of, of hydrogen, very small amounts. But it, conceptually, it worked. So then the next question is, how does that actually scale up? So we sat down and started laying out all the different pieces that have to come together to scale that up. And a long story short, it became quite apparent that physically and from an engineering standpoint, we could scale that thing up to meet the demand that they were looking for, but it made no sense economically. This thing would be big, it would be bulky, it would be very expensive. There were many other ways that were already out there in the world that could make hydrogen at a lower cost in a simpler process. So sometimes, this was an example where I had to, um, I joke about this, but tell them their baby was ugly. Tell them that this was not a... That's never popular to come to come with. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's this is the case here. And in this case, it was a hard conversation. But I think at the um, as we went through it, it was very important because within a matter of weeks, we were able to determine that this was not a path worth following and we could stop that development. That doesn't mean there may be other applications out there that this might be a niche for and there may be some fit. But for the specific application they were looking into getting into, it just didn't really fit. So in this case, what we actually did is I worked with them to pivot to a slightly different technology, which they were successful in, in expanding and scaling up and putting that out into the market. So this is just a case of, you know, is it a small group of, you know, very, very smart engineers and scientists, but just without some of that, what I would call real world experience and thinking about the next steps down the path after you get out of the laboratory, what is this product going to look like? How are we going to make it? What kind of materials do we need? Is it something that can be assembled easily out in the field or does it need a team of engineers every time to assemble it? So you start to put all those pieces together and you can really quickly understand what makes sense. And in many cases, when it doesn't make sense, you, you stop the work on it. That's almost as, as important as the successful cases sometimes to, to know when to stop. That is, that is. It's very, very much the case. Well, did, did you bring a case starting for us today which uh, had a more successful ending? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah, another, case, Wonderful. <laughs> another case study was in, you know, as I've worked with many different clients in different areas, but I'll talk about this other particular client that I worked with that was developing a um, an energy storage. Uh, basically, it's a um, grid storage battery. So a um, it's actually a flow battery, which is an electrochemical battery for storing large amounts of electricity. So typically that would be coupled up with either wind or solar or other renewables that you need to uh, store the energy while you're, you've got the right conditions, either the wind is blowing or the sun is shining, and then bring it back. So more utility scale batteries. Exactly, exactly. It's all utility scale. And this was a case that it was a um, very mature company. This is a you know Fortune 500 size company, um, but they had a very focused group of chemical engineers and chemists that understood the chemistry of what they call the electrolyte. These are basically the liquids that go into a flow battery that allow the electricity to be pumped into this liquid and stored in a liquid form. And then when you need it, you pump it back out through this electrical, um, electrochemical stack to get a um, electricity back out to the grid. So the story here is that these folks really understood the chemistry and they had something that was very unique and it was, that was their value proposition. The issue, of course, was how do you actually put the rest of the system around that? And as we were talking earlier, there needs to be what's called a cell stack. It's all the, just like when you're putting um, alkaline batteries in your um, remote control or something that has, or a flashlight where you, you stack many of those in there to get the right voltage. You're doing the same with the electrochemical, same with the electrochemical stack. You're just repeating these elements to you get the desired rating you want for that particular um, system. And there was a lot of work that went into that. And it's very analogous to other areas of these um, types of 
systems that are used in electrochemical stacks. So whether it's a fuel cell, an electrolyzer that makes hydrogen, or this flow battery, the parts all look very similar. You've got carbon materials, you've got membranes, you've got sealing materials, you've got um, loading pressure plates and tie rods and all these kinds of things. So when I came in, my job was to really help them figure out how do they get out of this very small demonstrator that they had that they could produce um, very small amounts of electricity that could be stored and put back onto the, um, it wasn't even the grid at this point, it was still in the laboratory. How do we actually make those parts larger? How do we put this together? Who do we work with to do that? You know, because clearly there are companies in the world that are very good at making those membranes. There's companies in the world that are very good at making, you know, an electrical enclosure cabinet. We don't want to reinvent all those pieces. Let these guys do what let these guys do what they're good with, the chemistry, and then bring in the right people to help us with all the other parts. And one of the other things I did is worked with the management group there to figure out what we need for the the human resources in there as well. So for example, you know, we need to make this in volume. Do we bring in some, you know, manufacturing engineers and process engineers? And there were some areas that were just more um, short-term. So for example, there's piping and plumbing and, and layouts that need to be put together. But once those are done, that's kind of the end of that work. So bring in some contract engineering to do that mechanical layout and some of the mechanical design rather than hire, you know, three or four or six mechanical engineers and keep them on for three months and then have to figure out something else for them to do when they're done with that project. So it was a little bit of a um, kind of an interim management project as well for me, where I was kind of acting as interim manager and helping to figure out what we needed for resources, coach some of those people that were on the team. You know, some of these engineers are very experienced. Others were, you know, fresh out of school and had the the book smarts, they really understood the chemistry they were working with, but needed a little bit of help to think about things like, you know, even as you're developing a um, new material, or you're developing a, a design, maybe you want to have a contingency plan. What if this doesn't work? We don't want to wait six months for the next design to come in. We may want to run with two designs, and then we pick the better one as we get further down the path. So there's a lot of that type of work that goes on, and, and that's really what I do with TechScale Solutions is to try to help the companies and the people I work with to see all those different aspects and to look a little further down the road. So they're, you know, try to minimize those, uh, those unforeseen circumstances. And what do you see sort of zooming out of it? Some of the implication of some of these technologies being deployed, sort of the hydrogen batteries, et cetera. Yeah, I think they're, um, you know, they really have made quite a bit of progress and they're really kind of the missing link, I think, with uh, renewable energy, as we know that you know, you've got daytime shifting of electricity. So for example, you know, during the day you're collecting solar energy, but in the evening you need to be able to put that back on the grid. So the batteries are a good way to store that. So people can cook that. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's very important. Very low practical, but. No, that's exactly what we need to do. And, and there's the lithium ion batteries, which are very similar to, you know, large scale versions of what's in your cell phone or what's in an electric car. And those are good for short duration. So they can shift electricity for maybe four hours, depending upon how big of an array of these batteries you want. But you can't shift for 12 hours. It's not economical. So if you want to have a much longer um, duration storage, you go to something like a flow battery, where that's now got that liquid electrolyte, that liquid chemical material that's in these tanks. And as big as the tank is, is as much electricity as you can store. So you just scale that tank, which is not very expensive because it's just a liquid tank, very similar to like a water tank for a municipal water okay. supply. And that can give you longer duration storage. 
And then finally, hydrogen comes into play as an interesting application as well for the very long-term storage. You know, people always look at it, it's hydrogen, you know, hydrogen fuel cell vehicle versus a battery electric vehicle, you know, which is better? The drivetrains are identical. They're all just electricity going to drive motors and making the wheels turn. But when you step back, the batteries are storing energy and the car will go as far as you have the amount of power you have in those batteries. The fuel cell is like a traditional internal combustion engine today, simply by the fact that you can just keep adding fuel and continuing on. So you can refuel it in about four to five minutes at a fueling station, and then you move on, I mean, go another 400 miles or so. So you have those um, abilities to um, you know, quickly refuel, and you're always making electricity as you go, as opposed to just storing it. And where that really helps is in large vehicles. I've worked on programs with uh, people making buses and large um, tractor-trailer semi uh, over the road trucks. And those, are, it's important to be able to um, have a lightweight fuel. So carrying large batteries takes away from the cargo or the payload that they can carry. Whereas the hydrogen, you can put maybe 10, gra- 10 kilograms or 20 kilograms, it's a very small amount of weight in there, those and go anywhere from you know 400 to 600 miles on a, um, on a single fueling. So that can be very good there. Now the catch, as everybody knows with hydrogen is that it's hard to find. It's not well deployed yet. It's very popular in California. There's a very good infrastructure that's being developed out in California. I live in the Northeast United States and there's some hydrogen stations that are starting to come online right now that's still very early on in that stage. In Europe and in Asia, there's a little bit more that's coming on. So there has to be some further work to get the infrastructure out there, much like happened with the um, the plug-in vehicles for um, electric vehicle charging as well. So that has to happen for very long-term storage. So when you want to seasonally shift power, hydrogen can then be the be a, um, a good energy storage media. So the, the flow batteries, as I was explaining, was maybe a, you know 12 hours or you know less than a day's worth of storage. Once you get into, you want to shift maybe for two months, three months. So for example, you're in a sunny climate during the, the summer months and you want to have power to ride through the winter. What's often being done, especially in um, Europe, I know in Germany, there's a big push for taking what they call excess renewables off the grid where they've got excess wind power, where they essentially have to either turn off the wind turbine or give away the electricity almost for free just to get someone to use it. We can run it through what's called an electrolyzer, which is really just a fuel cell running backwards. You're taking the electricity and making hydrogen. And you make the hydrogen, then you can store that. And then later on at some time in the future, maybe two months, three months down the road, you run it back through a fuel cell, you get electricity, and you can power you know, homes and, and businesses and whatever you need from that. So, so hydrogen is a very interesting fuel, and it's it's got a lot of interesting capabilities as you kind of put into the whole renewable energy mix. And I think the important thing to keep in mind is that there really is no one renewable energy technology that solves all the problems. It's kind of a, a mix of several of these put together that can really augment each other depending upon the you know, geographic locations, the climate that you're in, the um, you know the regulations, the the government oversight, all those things play into what makes sense, and it may not be the same answer in each location. That's a really interesting point, sort of that it's really a mix of of solutions that's going to come up with the full solution. What kind of obstacles do you think we need to sort of clear in order to move society towards using more renewables? Yeah, I think you know as we look at it, the the economics are starting to make sense. 
People are putting solar panels on their homes very regularly. That's very common. You know, wind power, we're starting to see a lot of offshore wind now in the U.S. even, which is exciting to see. But I think where the, some of the gaps and the obstacles are is, you know, there's a lot of government policy and regulation that has to be looked at. And it's, um, it's interesting because, you know, we're getting into new territory. It's competing with existing technologies and trying to figure out how to allow all these technologies to play well together and understanding that, you know, we really shouldn't try to pick one technology, as I mentioned before, and declare that one the winner. Let these technologies start to get out into the field. And, you know, unfortunately, there is sometimes some need for subsidies or other ways to get the technology going. Because what I've seen, especially in a lot of the development that I've worked on, is that, you know, at very low volumes of manufacturing production, these systems are very expensive. They just don't justify the you know, the, the high volume manufacturing. We saw this in the solar industry a number of years back where as the um, industry grew, we had much higher volumes and the costs came down. And this is happening today, you know, certainly in, in, in all of these different areas. So that's, that's a good thing. But um, I think if, you know, you look at it from the standpoint of, you know, the good that this can do for the for the planet, for people, and really even for for jobs. You know, it's not, it's kind of, interesting to see that when people think of the renewable energy industry at first, you think about a bunch of scientists and engineers sitting in a laboratory someplace coming up with some clever new technology. But To just fix it all. Yeah, and now we see this as there's many, many jobs that come out of this industry, whether it be you know installing systems, field support, manufacturing these systems, selling these systems, and all the different areas that come, that come along with it. So it can be... Um, you know, it can be a very large opportunity for people. And I think if people start to look at it in that way, that it's not just a, um, the, you know, the social benefit of um, helping the planet, but it's actually economically viable and can actually um, be a good business model to be in as well. That's very, um, very important. And it creates a lot of jobs as well. Exactly. As you know, sort of at the Renew Exact Research, we work with our clients and candidates globally who are seeking to grow their business or career by, by, growing a business, but there's also a lot of listeners out there who might be looking to go into renewables. What kind of qualifications do you think are needed to succeed in the renewable industries? Yeah, I think there's really at least two major things that you need to be comfortable with to get into the renewable energy space, In my, from my perspective. I think one is a, a tolerance to risk. And by risk, I don't mean so much a safety risk that we're not jumping out of airplanes or climbing up uh, you know, large mountains or anything like that, but really just the the risk of job stability and you know in these stages right now to understanding that a lot of these technologies and a lot of these small companies that are starting out may not actually pan out. They may not actually work. And you have to be flexible enough to be able to adapt. And even myself, I did that in my career. As I went along, I quickly saw that, you know, as one technology was slowing down, there may be another one picking up and a lot of times you can look for commonalities between them. It's not like you're starting over in a totally new industry. You're just making a slight pivot, a little bit of an adaption to um, to get that working. So I would say, you know, tolerance to risk is very important. The second one I would say is um, is patience. You know, unlike some industries where, you know, for example, in the software industry, you might design a new application for a smartphone. You can design it, you can develop it, you can put it out there get users working with it, they give you feedback, you can update the software, and you can do that in a relatively short period of time. The energy industry works a little bit more slowly. Um, you know, First of all, you've got to get this product developed and get it out in the field. 
There can be regulatory issues you need to work through. You know, safety, of course, is a very important thing. We always want to take a cautious approach, approach as we get this um, new technology out into the environment and make sure it's safe for not only you know the people using it and working on it, but also the people around this. You know, in the in the neighborhoods and the areas that are that are nearby to the um, to the installations. So this can take some time to do, and it you don't get that immediate gratification of saying. Wow, I just saved the world today. <laughs> it's it's over it's over a career and it may not even see it all happen in your career. It, it could happen over over many many years. I mean, I worked with folks when I was at UTC Power that had been working in fuel cells for 40 years. They developed the fuel cells that were on the early NASA Apollo spacecraft. Oh wow. And, and they saw all the different iterations of time and you know, and they had some very successful projects, but they were all very you know, specific applications, specific um Areas where they um, they solve some needs in terms of energy production, but it wasn't a high volume commercial product that had a big impact on the everyday consumer and the everyday person. So, you know, it does take time for these technologies to is, to evolve. And if you think about a lot of other industries, are you know no different. You know, when we were the automobiles first were being developed, you know, back in the early 1900s, it took some time to figure out how to make them, how to make them work, and then get them to the point where they are today. So it, it, you do have to have that patience, I guess, is really the bottom line there. But when you've seen people fail in the sector, what does the typical reason is that behind that? Yeah, I would say it really is the folks that want the quick win. You know, if you want to do something today and, you know, within the year you see that, wow, this is huge. We, our company just went from zero to, you know, millions of dollars in sales in a year. That doesn't happen real often in this environment. It takes anywhere, I would say, you know, five plus years from the time you've had something in the laboratory to the time that it's a really successful commercial product and, you know, it's deployed out in the world. So, and you're going to have some failures along the way. I think everybody that I know that's been in this industry of renewable energy for any period of time has had plenty of failures along the way. And, you know, at first it's frustrating, but as you look back on it, you actually learn so much from that. And, and that's really the reason the industry is able to move forward more quickly because you've got folks like myself and others that have worked in this industry for a long period of time that can take those lessons learned, apply them and move forward into the next technology, which may then be very successful. So it's a case of really just trying to, um, to adapt and to take what you learn and be patient. Yeah, exactly. You worked across a number of different industries, sort of how different uh, would you say the renewable industry is compared to other sectors? Yeah, I would say one of the things that's a little bit different, you know, maybe I'd start with what's the same. You know, one of the things that's the same is every sector that you could possibly work in has some sort of change. You know, whether you're working in the automotive industry, we've seen that transition from, you know, the cars that were built in the, you know, the early 1900s and then right through the end of the uh, 20th century to the, the vehicles that are being built today, which have far more electronic controls and they're now going to electric drivetrains and those are changing. But if you look at the automotive industry, we'll stick with that as an example. They have a path charted out. They understand what's next. They're you know working on new materials for lighter weight vehicles. They're working on autonomous driving, all these different things that are um, you know being in in development. And you know while nothing is certain with all those, there's still regulation and things that have to be figured out there. There's a there's a little bit of a path kind of charted out there. You know, I think the um, energy is, especially the renewable energy, is challenging because there's so many outside factors that can influence the markets that are beyond the technology. So as I was as I was saying, you know, back by 2010, 
when I was at UTC, we had developed fuel cell buses that were running out in various locations, including the West Coast of um, the United States, that have now run for 30,000 hours. It's over 500,000 miles. They're competing with a diesel bus. So they actually, we got to the point where the technology works, and that was great. But the problem is there's so many other influences that are holding it back. And it's really you know, the adoption, the interest to move forward with the infrastructure for the hydrogen refueling to get to the point where the cost would come to a reasonable level. Because, you know, certainly those buses cost more than a diesel bus. They were built in very low volume back in, you know, the early, the mid-2005, um, 2010 timeframe. So as we look at that, there's really a case of, you know, looking at all the factors that play in and trying to work through those. And it can be everything from, as I mentioned, government policy and regulation to the climate you're operating in, to the geography. You might be at the top of a mountain or you might be down by the, the sea. And then ultimately, it's the market acceptance as well. You know, folks have to adopt the technology and see the benefit of it. You know, at the end of the day, while everyone would like to be green and and uh, you know to have something that is um, you know good for the planet that they're working on, if it doesn't make economic sense, then it's really hard. It's to never going to work. Exactly. That's very good insight. Lastly, we always like to ask our guests sort of what words of advice or counsel would you give to anyone looking to get into the industry and really grow their renewable career? Yeah, I would say you want to first just start to to get your feet wet, to see what's going on. One of the things that I've found is uh, very interesting to do is um, go, if you've got a kind of a green tech incubator or a university you know, near where you live, tap into that. You know, A lot of times they'll have an open house or they'll have some information sessions where they'll talk about what different projects they're working on. And, you know, inevitably you'll have some company that's developing, you know, new transportation systems or new energy storage or distribution systems and, and start to talk to those people. Because if nothing else, you'll find almost this infectious interest and love for the, for the, the purpose of what they're doing. And, and that's really a big motivator in understanding, you know, why you'd want to even get into this in the first place, because it is more than just, you're developing some interesting technical device, you are really starting to make an impact on the world. So I find these kind of green tech incubators to be a, a good area to look at. I mean, you know, there's trade shows and things you can go to for sure. Um, another area is things like um, even within your own community. There's oftentimes I had served on an energy board in the community where I live. And really what it was looking at was, you know, how do we reduce the energy consumption in our town? Can we, we ended up putting in some geothermal um, systems, solar panels, things along those lines just starting to talk to people that are in that industry and you quickly understand that there's a lot of different opportunities there. Like I had said, you, know, you don't have to be an engineer or a chemist to be in this industry. You could be a manufacturing person. You could be a technician. You could be a salesperson. There's just really a very wide range of, um, of applications and, and areas where you can work and be, and be contributing to this, um, this environment. And then finally, I would say, you know, feel free to check us out on on Twitter. If you look for TechScale Solutions on Twitter, we post, um, you know, at least several posts a week just on interesting new renewable technologies and some of the progress that's happening there. So that's another good spot people can take a look. Thank you very much. And thank you so much, George Robertson, president of TechScale Solutions. And if you like us listening out there, do like us on your platform of choice for podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, Christian. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Renewables Going Mainstream with Brand Hanley and Christian Crown, partners at Renew Executive Search. We hope you enjoyed hearing our renewable industry experts' stories as much as we enjoyed recording them. 
If you want to learn more about this fast-growing sector and learn how you can become more involved, please subscribe to this podcast and share with your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brand, Christian, Renewable Executive Search and the booming renewables industry, visit www.goforrenew.com. That's www.go4renew.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode of Renewables Going Mainstream.